Hello, this is Deb from Deb's Data Dojo, part of the Calling All Beings podcast network. Today, I have my friend John Ramirez here to talk to me. Um, John Ramirez is a retired CIA, CIA officer. He is also an experiencer and has made it one of his goals to help other experiencers. Though he's had an extensive background as an intelligence analyst, he joins me today not as a retired CIA officer, but in the hopes of educating and assisting experiencers and others who have had encounters with the phenomenon. So thank you for joining me today. I'm really hoping we can help some people today. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. I look forward to this. I know. Uh, So I I wasn't sure if you had a presentation or anything, but I definitely made a whole bunch of questions. (laughs) Fine, yes. Um, Ready to answer what I can. Okay. So I guess the very first thing is, and I'm going to really try to, for anyone who's listening, try to pack in as much as I can within an hour about how to deal with being an experiencer and so on and so forth. But the first thing that we should probably address is what does it mean to be an experiencer? Because that's something that is often debated. So what would you tell someone about what that means? Well, in my case, uh, I don't know if it's a typical case, but in my case, uh, it was a series of um, visualizations, a series of dreams. Uh, The visualizations came through a meditation where I was transported, I guess that's the best word I can use, transported to another type of being of, of like existence, where I wasn't really uh, within myself, but more without myself, with outside of myself, I would say. And uh, during this experience, um, I had encounters with beings I would call beings of, of non-human intelligence, uh, where I would communicate with them and they would communicate with me. And so for me, that constitutes an experience. Um, Having said that, uh, I too struggle with the meaning of the word experience, sir, because there's also the the, another um, term called contactee. And so I don't know the difference between an experiencer and a contactee. It seems like a contactee is a person that um, was purposely contacted for, for uh, conveying of a, a message to others. And I don't think um, that was my case. I think um, my experience was more personal. It was an experience for me and me alone. And the fact that I'm sharing it, it's uh, not because I wanted to convey anything to anyone else. I don't have any messages for humanity or humankind or anything like that. It was more about my own self, uh, my own life, and my purpose, the purpose of my life. So for me, that's what an experiencer is. And that's all based on, on um, my personal experience. So I feel like contactee was sort of set aside because some people were uncomfortable with the term more than for any other reason, right? They definitely set aside abductee, like they didn't like that term. So that got pushed aside. And experiencer seems to be more all-encompassing. So I think that's why that got adopted is the term more all-encompassing. It encompasses the people who have had out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, um, experiences with the paranormal, um, beyond UAPs, so on and so forth. So I think that's what what happened with that. So now that we have kind of an idea of what that means, um, I guess... One of the questions would be if someone is having experiences, 
we kind of need to break down some things that they can do um, to handle that situation. Now, some people will say it's a really positive thing for them. Other people, not so much, right? So we've got a, a whole spectrum of people to try to help, right? Um, so what would be the first thing you would suggest to someone who comes forward as an experiencer to get help? Well, I think um, I would suggest the same as what people do for analyzing their own dreams. Um, people have dream journals to write down what ex what happened during the dream so they can remember it. And so if a person has an experience, um, I would suggest um, creating a journal, keeping a journal so that you can write down exactly what have what happened during that experience as a starting point. Okay, so the first step is to get a journal. Um, the next step is a controversial one. Sometimes when people are in an unhappy place due to their experiences, they may want to get psychiatric help. Now, this is why there's a double-edged sword. Um, unfortunately, for those who are still in the military, if you seek psychiatric help, you may be told that you're no longer capable. You may get demoted. You may be told not to fly if you're in the Air Force, etc. Um, and unfortunately, I feel like that that can be problematic. Um, so what are your thoughts on the military um, for those who need the psychiatric help but are wary to go get it? I don't know what the protocol might be in a, a military situation because uh, I don't recall having an experience while I was in the military. I served six years in the Navy. And during that time, I don't recall having the same type of experience um, I've had prior to military service and after military service. I can only relate it to my federal service with CIA when I've had experiences. And in that situation, it really wasn't, there was no stigma actually uh, with seeking psychiatric help or any kind of help for that matter uh, within CIA. And I believe this is true in many federal agencies. There's something called the Employee Assistance Program or EAP. And the Employee Assistance Program is designed for individuals to receive help of that nature without management being involved. It's completely voluntary. It's completely confidential. It's not entered into your service record. It's held in high confidence between the employee and the medical personnel involved in that employee's um, therapy. And so I know at CIA, there's something called EAP. So I would imagine that uh, it still exists um, even today. So. I can relate it to that, but I don't know what they would do in the military. And I do take your point that um, like an airline pilot or anyone who is in a situation where their job requires uh, 100% uh, full capacity, full performance, um, and you don't want to put any lives at risk uh, when you report something like that, it might tend to have repercussions in terms of one's profession. Um, but I don't know what I would do as a military person uh, to seek that type of uh, therapy or, or any kind of help like that, that might um, not affect one's uh, career. I, I don't have any basis to come up with any kind of um, experience on that level because I never had that. 
Unfortunately, that makes me very sad that the stigma related to psychiatric help prevails. And, of course, it was used against people in the past who made claims, because then if they had that on their record, people could turn and say, oh, look, you went to see a psychiatrist. Something must be wrong with you, right, within the military. So mm -hmm. people that I've spoken to and interviewed, you know, of course, tried to avoid those evaluations. Mm -hmm. And of course, that meant that they continue to struggle, mm -hmm. which of course would compound the issue, right? <laughs> Instead of solving the issue. Um, so it's really unfortunate. Um, I just hope that someone listening will come up with a solution because there is something called normal psychology, you know? So it's not like everyone who goes to get psychiatric help has an abnormal issue either. <laughs> so, right. So. Right. Yes. And uh, I can also relate another uh, based on my CIA experience uh, prior to overseas deployment and uh, post overseas deployment. Uh, we went through some kind of psychological evaluation to make sure we're fit for service, that we're prepared to go overseas, do the mission. When we come back, um, they also um, interviewed us, um, a, a mental health professional, in fact, would interview us to make sure that um, that we're all fine, that whatever we experience in this uh, particular mission did not affect us adversely. And I recall having those interviews, and these were just part of normal everyday uh, work, that uh, we would confidentially go to the Office of Medical Services uh, for this th these types of interviews. Um, so that's what I can relate to. Um, but yeah, I can see your point that, yeah, there is a stigma, and it, there shouldn't be a stigma. Um, and I don't think that there is a stigma in federal civilian service because I've heard about these other employee assistance programs for employees. Um, there, there, but there's two avenues for this employee assistance program. One is self-referral, which means that the individual will refer his or herself um, for this type of therapy. Uh, the one that you don't want to get is a management referral. When management notices something, and then management can actually assign you to be referred. And that might have a little bit of more of a professional stigma to one's career at CIA. Uh, but in most cases, I've heard that in the EAP has been very wonderful for helping employees get through just about anything, not just experiences, but uh, some have experienced like deaths in the family or any other tragic occurrence that may occur um, in the family or to oneself that might require some kind of therapy. Yeah, I thought I'd just mention for comparison, um, since I do work in the mental health field, therapists have, generally speaking, their own referral system to go to a therapist. So <laughs> that's like how um, against stigma we are when it comes to mental health. We're like, yeah, you can, if you need it. And of course, you know, we carry a lot of other people's burdens. So it makes mm -hmm. sense that we might you know, go get it. But, but, and the other example for comparison that I came up with was for NASA. Like they talk about, you know, they give them so much care for their psychology, you know, because they understand, you know, what they might be going through once they go into space. Um, it's such a different um, standard, you know, that they, they want to make sure their psychology is optimal. So they're going to do everything to take care of their psychology. But when it comes to soldiers, who go through horrendous, violent um, ordeals sometimes, or combat, or just 
you know, who knows? Like, even I imagine just the same feelings as an astronaut. Like, if you're in the Navy and you're on a ship, you might have some of those same feelings, you know, of not being on Earth, like on the plane, like land, you know. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it, but, but yeah, the same feelings. So, why, why that's that double standard is there? I don't know. It's unfortunate. So, for those who um, are able to get psychiatric help, there is one group that you recommend often, so I thought we could talk about them briefly. I, I will let you go ahead and talk about Opus and how one might connect to them. <laughs> yes, um, the Organization for Paranormal Understanding and Support. Um, I discovered them uh, just off chance. Uh, I was in a study group studying, um, uh, we would call it exo-studies as a matter of fact, and it, it covers the full range of the phenomenon and all the various hypotheses of the phenomenon. And it went into um, many aspects of uh, how we as individuals or how we collectively as humans uh, deal with this phenomenon when it occurs and all of its ramifications, both positive, neutral, and uh, negative. And um, I wanted to do a little more research into this because I've heard of uh, people having these uh, abduction experiences where the abduction was seen as a very negative experience. Um, and what, how would someone help uh, someone, an individual like that? And basically I found them through just Googling. And uh, here was this Opus network and I looked into it and saw it to be a very positive kind of um, attempt to marshal the resources of the therapist community of people uh, like yourself to, to help people with these more specific abduction experiences not just general help but abduction experience help where they can go to this organization where they're not treated as someone who needs treatment uh, in the sense of the traditional sense but someone who just needs um, another person to listen to them, to take them seriously and not um, cast them as someone who's not mentally functioning 100% um, and not, you know, first thing, prescribe drugs. No, they don't do that. And so I found that to be a very positive effort. And there are uh, Opus, uh, the Opus network is, is a network because there are therapists who uh, will contact them to volunteer their services uh, specifically for the abduction experience. So when some individual, like say if I had a negative experience, I can contact Opus and find out if there are therapists in the Tucson region uh, who are part of the Opus network um, who can help me specifically with an abduction experience if it's not positive. Even, even if it is positive, you might just want someone to talk to because if it's a positive experience, you, you might feel that you don't feel comfortable, you know, uncomfortable you might feel uncomfortable sharing it with family and friends and coworkers. So it's just another person to, to share even a positive experience. And so I'm very heartened that uh, in the community, our community at large, there are experiencer groups that have been formed um, to, for people to talk about their experiences. Yeah. It's almost um, a little sad to me that, you know, to think about, the people who don't have people to talk to about this who are out there and like how can you relate if someone else has no idea i've never experienced anything like that 
you know, even among experiencers, there's such a vast array of experiences. So even that's difficult, but at least you know that that person's had something that kind of stands out happen in their life. Right. So that helps a little bit to have that support. Right, right. So Opus also has um, YouTube videos for anyone who's interested in learning more about them. They do interviews. They have a wonderful website and it has some archives. I strongly recommend people to peruse their web page. Um, I do have it linked on the UFO connector under experiencer support. We know there are other groups, um, like for experiencer group. Um, there's little local chapters across the whole country. Um, and it's good to see that it's, you know, really being taken seriously. Obviously at this point, um, people are more inclined to take it seriously. Um, it also seems to be more inclusive because at one point, I think those groups were only looking at UAP encounters. And now I think they're also including other paranormal. Mm. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to mention about that um, is that the peer support is, you know, again, really important. I think so. Even if you don't end up in a group, if you could just find one person <laughs> <laughs> you know, just one person to help guide you. And John's been great about helping people. Like he's always offered to anyone who needed to talk to him about their experiences. Um, so I know, I don't know how available you still are for that, John, but I know that that's one thing you really wanted to do. Uh, yes, that's true. Um, I've, I don't say I've been overwhelmed, but there have been many people who've come to me just to um, through direct message, for example, uh, just wanted to share their experience and not necessarily that they wanted to contact me and have me speak with them, but just to like write it down and have someone read it. Um, even at that level, um, I've had several um, interactions with people doing that as well as one-on-one -on -one personal interactions, um, especially with those um, who've had uh, some experience with uh, prior government service, so they may be contractors. And uh, so I'm always willing to, and veterans as well, so I'm always willing to talk to veterans and, and federal employees, former and currently serving. Um, but having said that, I am not a professional therapist, so it's I'm just a, a I'm just a willing listener. And, and at that level, that's all some people really want. It's just someone to listen to them and not criticize them or not uh, castigate them, uh, not make them feel like they're, they're different. Uh, and saying, you know, it's a normal thing. It's the same thing I've experienced or I've heard other people experiencing that. And just hearing that is kind of a reassurance for, for folks. And it reminds me of a talking point that I've brought up to people before. If you don't know how else to talk to someone about the phenomenon if you just ask people have you ever had like a psychic dream almost everyone has okay mm -hmm. so at some point people can relate and at some level people can relate so but it is more helpful of course to speak to someone who's had um, more experiences with the paranormal who has a deeper understanding to get that support um, it is worth noting because you mentioned of course um, some people have come forward you know, intel people come forward, military people. Um, did you know that Robert Salas is an experiencer? Uh, no, I've not heard that. 
Right. So I read his book and I just interviewed him. He was my last interview. Um, and we talked about that. And a lot of people didn't know that. And it, it's a, it brings me to a question. Do you feel like experiencers um, are especially drawn to talk about this, even though they may not be public about those experiences? Um, there could be that aspect to it. Um, I think there's a feeling of community among, among experiencers, um, especially uh, those who um, want to share their experience in a positive way um, because there might be a message for them and that message might be applicable to others. And so um, that avenue is also open to them um, as a way of reaching out. Um, and so I, I think as more people talk about it, not just within our community, but with outside of our community, um, the stigma will hopefully dissipate. And I just want to mention that uh, in some of the legislation, at, at least the, the NDAA UAP legislation, um, there is a provision in there for the government to report. And I believe it only applies, as you said, to the military and the federal side of government. Uh, people who've experienced uh, the phenomenon and both physiologically and psychologically, the government and now the Pentagon specifically uh, is now uh, mandated to keep records of any of those types of uh, occurrences within its own ranks and to make a report to Congress about the physiological and psychological aspects of encountering the phenomenon. So there is uh, another road of um, opening this part of the of the uh, UAP story, op uh, opening it up more uh, so that it's a little more better accepted, more widely accepted. Uh, I, I would be like thrilled to see um, you know co uh, Congress getting a report like that about how this affects military personnel or federal service personnel. Well, I think I would like to go to the psychology part of that first. I'm supposed to be talking to Mr. Elizondo next month. And that's one of the questions I want to emphasize, the psychology that's involved in this. Um, who is it that's going to be helping these people? That's what I want to know, because, you know, it's one thing to report, but I want to know who's helping. You know, like, that's what I care about, right? And I will say behind the scenes, there are some people who are coming forward in the community. Um, we're meeting and having conversations about the psychology aspect. Um, but I guess my question is actually that sometimes people are, are coming out um, like Kevin Day and they're describing positive psychological effects. Um, initially, if you recall, he was very much traumatized by what happened when he first talked about it. He said he had nightmares. He basically had PTSD. But now he's saying it really changed him. Um, he talked about going after a treasure in a gold mine or something like that and finding it and it just like the whole experience really changed him have you heard him speak about that kevin day uh not specifically about a gold mine but i have heard right. Kevin Day speak yes but i don't recall him addressing a mine uh with gold in it right yeah i don't i don't know all the details on that either but he was really emphatic that after you have a an encounter with the phenomenon We'll say I, I wouldn't say a UAP phenom uh, encounter, but it's more than that. Um, if you have that encounter, it can really change you, and, and that kind of lines up with kind of what was implied by Gary Nolan too, with 
the brain and the enlargement of part of the brain that, you know, like there's something going on where you are impacted permanently. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I don't know. Um, it's one of the things that uh, I wish uh, I could get uh, my medical records to see if anything was detected about me or anything to do with me officially. And I'm still waiting for those records. I don't know if they ever appear, um, but I would explore that for my own self if um, there is any kind of changes physiologically to my brain. I don't know uh, because I don't think there've ever been any kind of studies prior to. So how can I tell that what they see now is the result of some kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, an augmentation? Um, how would they measure that if they had no prior uh, reference to the experience? Uh, I've been experiencing this all throughout my life ever since I was small. So it could have been a more of a gradual kind of change that occurred for me. Because um, I think I was always kind of interested in the paranormal or the metaphysical. And um, so with that background, a lifelong background, I don't think it was like a dramatic thing that may have happened to Kevin Day. Perhaps that's why when I've had my, uh, I call them taken experiences, not abduction experiences, because I wanted to be taken. Um, I, I wasn't traumatized that bad, by that. I was, I was welcoming uh, that experience. The tra trauma was having to come back here. I didn't want to be here at all. And so um, given that, um, I, I wouldn't know how, um, for my own self, I wouldn't know how they would determine has, if anything has changed. But I think it's interesting research that it would do that. Oh, um, yeah. I would love to talk to Gary Nolan. <laughs> I really would. I, I keep kind of hinting and like putting out feelers. And one day I got to talk to him in a talk space briefly and I asked him about sample size. But unfortunately, I had an interview, so I couldn't stay. <laughs> it's like, I really want to stay and talk about this because the mental health part and for those who are listening and don't get this, the brain has to do with mental health 100 percent. You know, of course it does. Um, I, I tell people we should just call it brain health because it would really simplify things and end some stigma. Okay. But um, yeah, I really want to know more about that because not only did he study UAP encounters, but, you know, schizophrenia and autism spectrum disorder, you know, all of that is interesting to me. So I really, I, I want to talk to him. Um, so I wanted to say though, just um putting the brain aspect aside because some people are not as into that part of course and we just look at the psychology as we know it um you you had a positive feeling kevin day eventually had a positive feeling a lot of people turn around and eventually say they had positive feelings about it um i've broken down a whole bunch of the feelings with people when we have these behind the scenes panels and conversations about psychology right but, but one thing I've expressed to you privately is that I had an ambivalent reaction when I saw a UAP. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you remember, I told you, I just was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And kept going. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, that's, you know, not ours. I'm going to just keep going. Um, and you and I engaged in a conversation that um, has a, a little bit to do with psychology and that ambivalence about how there's a possibility that there's people who have had encounters and don't remember them. Right, yes. Yes, right. and um, here's um, um, a situation where there's another type of therapy that might come into play 
Um, it's called QHHT. I'm sure you know that's uh, quantum healing hypnosis technique by Dolores Cannon. And uh, my wife and I have uh, reached out to a QHHT practitioner here in the Tucson area. And my wife has had um, a session with her. And the QHHT practitioner, um, she herself uh, is an experiencer. And the other QHHT practitioner that I've dealt with, I think I've dealt with at least two um, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, they were all experiencers. And they come to the QHHT therapy uh, modality from the experiencer standpoint. So um, that's one way to uh, for folks to uh, get help or just to, to try to remember because it's very effective in helping one remember some of these experiences that may have been forgotten in our conscious mind, but it's still there. And uh, I found it to be a very effective technique. It took about an hour and a half to two hours for myself, same for my wife. But when, you, when I went through it, um, it was like I went into that state of mind um, or state of spirit, I guess you would say, and went, came out of it and seemed like an, an almost an instant. And it was recorded. And um, when I listened to the three recordings during that session, um, I was surprised at what I said. And I've always referred to myself as he. I never referred to myself as me. So there was some other like higher self, higher consciousness or source, I guess you would call it, uh, speaking ab about me from outside of myself. And I was surprised at what I said about myself and uh, remembering things from the perspective of this higher consciousness uh, perspective. So QHHT is another one that I guess um, I went Googled uh, Tucson QHHT practitioner and found uh, several of them here in the Tucson area. So uh, that's, that's another avenue to, to uh, search. Yep. So I think hypnotherapy in general draws people in. They really want to know. They want to get into that deeper level of understanding. Um, I know for, for for myself, I don't have the best memory. Like there's vacations that my family talks about. I'm like, I don't remember any of that. So like I could relate wanting that. But do you have some tips and tricks for people looking to do hypnotherapy in general? Like what are like red flags they should pay attention to? What are things they should do after the hypnotherapy to be, you know, supported and not have any like lasting problems? Well, there's where um, I would say that uh, the only personal experience I've had was through the QHHG modality. And these people are uh, very specially trained and they have to go through several sessions um, of actually practicing this um, on each other and to learn how Dolores Cannon taught it. Um, I would say that that's why I would go to a QHHT, specifically QHHT practitioner, a certified one, uh, because they uh, take you as a whole person, uh, not just an individual needing therapy or uh, an individual seeking uh, past life regression. A lot of therapists do that, but a QHHT therapist uh, would do that from the perspective of most of them uh, I've heard are experiencers. And so there is built in, in the QHHT modality, that construct of helping people to recall these specific experiences and to then provide them with um, help afterwards. 
um, because uh, it wasn't just like, all right, thanks very much, and uh, see you later. Uh, it was. Uh, it's almost like a, a community evolved around that. Um, my wife was invited to a community of the QHHT um, uh, people who uh, underwent uh, this modality with this particular practitioner, practitioner, where they would gather together and talk about experiences if they're comfortable in real life, you know, like face to face uh, as a community. So um, there's after post-therapy support in the QHHT world. Yeah, that's extremely important. I think if anyone's dealing with someone who just wants their money for an hour and then you're out the door, that's not where you should be going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, because if you are being given the keys to something traumatic, if you're being shown something really kind of, um, I, I don't want to say horrific, but um, shocking perhaps, has happened to you that you weren't expecting and suddenly you remember and then you have no support and you're supposed to just drive home with that. That's terrible. <laughs> you know, yes. so, so that's like one of my red flags. Of course, I'm, you know, expect people to be trained and certified and all those things. And, and another for me is just, of course, even some people who claim to be excellent hypnotherapists can lead. Um, so really, I'm just really cautious about, people leading people when they're hypnotized <laughs> you know, that would be another red flag if they if it sounds like they're leading you and they're saying oh was there a little person in front of you with two heads that's leading mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a problem that right. can, that can mm -hmm. mess with your brain so be careful so um so another thing that we um you've mentioned in the past that I wanted to get to was light workers. Can you define light workers for people, please? Well, uh, I guess the best definition I have is, is a, it's a person um, who dedicates his or herself to helping others get a connection with their higher self and the means to do so um, through meditation. Um, it could evolve, involve also um, uh, methods of, of, of using um, um, not just meditation, but like uh, a, a social setting, a social encounter, um, more like, um, I guess, I, I wouldn't know what to call it. Um, I guess in, in the Native American tradition, there's the... Uh, these, these uh, sweat lodges, I guess you would call it, of getting together or individually um, or together and experiencing something together um, and to lead them, um, not direct them, but to lead them into connecting with higher self. And I've had uh, several experiences with light workers. Um, they're just there to um, connect you to your higher self and uh, not that, you know, your higher self might be Pladean or Turin or Orion or, or anybody else, but just reach within you to, to go with, to reach in in order to reach out and to teach you how to meditate. So the light workers I've had have taught me how to meditate and they were very effective at it. Um, to me, it's just a helper of, of higher consciousness, of connecting someone to higher consciousness. And they themselves have had experiences with connecting to higher consciousness and just providing a, a guidance to you, uh, not directing you, but providing guidance on how to achieve that. 
and to help you answer your own questions and how to ask a question to your higher self and get an answer back. That's the best. But I'm not yeah. a light worker. I don't claim yeah. to be a light worker, but I have availed myself to the services of, of several light workers. So um, can you give some recommended people or websites for that real quick before I get into more on that? <laughs> well, um, uh, I have permission to um, provide information for one of my light workers. She uh, gave me permission. Uh, unfortunately, she isn't based in the United States. She's based in Vicenza, Italy. Um, but uh, she is uh, an American uh, expat living in Vicenza, Italy. And her name is uh, Glenn with two N's, Younger. Glenn Younger, uh, Y-O-U-N-G-E-R, Glenn Younger. And uh, she has a YouTube uh, channel um, that's very helpful. I think she posts uh, several of her videos that you can look at for, for free. Um, and she, talk, she gives talks on various aspects of the phenomenon of um, how to uh, make the most of your earth experiences. And she herself is an experiencer. She's gone through like decades of, of training um, at various places. Uh, most notably, uh, there's the Universal Light Center in Black Mountain, North Carolina, uh, which was founded by a, um, back then it was called the Atomic Energy Commission. We call it Department of Energy now. Uh, a senior official of the AEC named Jim Gore, G-O-U-R-E, he's passed away. But he, he uh, recognized that um, a lot of these experiences have to deal with higher consciousness and they have an energy aspect to them. And so he created the Universal Light Center um, and she trained through that. She's also um, uh, spoken with and uh, studied under various other uh, people in the higher consciousness community. So um, I will provide you the link to that uh, as well, Deb, because I think she's a wonderful person. Yeah. You know, yeah, I love so to I, put stuff on yeah. on the UFO connector about any resources people can use. You know, I you know I love to do that. So I was already writing down names, but yes, any information that can go on the connector and help people, I'm all about. Um, so just going back a couple steps, one thing that we talked about in passing just now was you said the sweat lodges and Native Americans. And one thing that is really important in um, what I do is we recognize cultural differences, which, you know, has me asking, did you read the Artie Six Killer Clark book yet? I don't believe I have, no. Okay, you've got to read it. It's got all these stories of indigenous people. And and first she does America, right? And then she goes further into South America and she called it Mesoamerica. You've got to take a look. So it's worth noting that when we are talking about experiences, we have to remember to look at it from a cultural lens. Um, and in fact, I think a lot of the terms switch through history because people are only able to see things through their cultural lens. Um, so, you know, when we look at documentation about UAPs, what they've been called has changed over time. You know, wheels in the sky, uh, shields, you know, so on and so forth. So I just wanted to mention that since you mentioned um, the sweat lodges, people have to remember to look at things through their cultural lens. And it's been a, so much fun to research that aspect 
because there's a lot of origin myths that have to do with sky people mm -hmm. and star people. You know, it's very interesting. Um, and of course, if you look at the Bible and go into, you know, the whole religious aspect, really interesting. Today, I was looking at angels. <laughs> and it's all semantics, isn't it? But uh, who's, who's to say it's not all the same thing? Mm -hmm. but, but nonetheless, when you're having conversations with people, you have to remember to look at their cultural lens. I remember in the FOIAs, they talk about China um, having their conference where they come out with their first announcement of having a major UAP event. Um, and of course, they'd had them before, but they didn't announce it until I think it was 91. And they were talking about a spiral that was seen in the sky. Mm. And, and, you know, they, their um, big thing was, oh, and of course, a million people saw this. <laughs> and I was thinking, of course, they're going to say that. It's China. <laughs> you know, they're going to say a million people saw it. But there's no pictures. I looked for them, John. There are no pictures. <laughs> mm -hmm. And even in the 90s, people had cameras. Where were the pictures? But <laughs> So, yes, the cultural lens. And, of course, you know, with, with Russia, they have their, their view of the whole thing, too. Like, you know, it's a back and forth in the FOIA is about, oh, it's Russia. No, it's America. And they were arguing about it. It was so funny to read those. <laughs> so, anywho, maybe not funny to everyone, but I thought it was funny. But, yeah, cultural lens. We have to remember that. Um. <clears throat> Sorry, had to go on that tangent for a minute. So I, I want to get into very specific things related to the physical aspects of UAP experiences um, for a little while, since I know we're running out of time. I wanted to make sure we went over a few things. What would you recommend for people who do not want to have experiences in the um book that I just told you to, that you should be reading again with already six killer Clark. One person negotiated with the um, entities and they said, fine, we'll agree to stop at a certain age. Other people have told me they've just asked the phenomenon, leave me alone. And it has worked. Um, so what's your advice? Exactly what you just said um, to just say, please leave me alone. I can relate an experience. Um, I don't believe it was uh, an extraterrestrial or interterrestrial or like ultra terrestrial experience. I just think it was uh, a disembodied spirit. Um, it was uh, a woman uh, dressed in white, uh, long flowing gowns that would appear and just, I catch her in the corner of my eye, look over to where she um, was just swooping right by me. And it was a palatable visual experience. I could actually see that she was there and then would like go away. And I just say, please leave me alone. Um, I'm busy right now. Please leave me alone. And she would leave me alone for a long time. Um, and I hadn't seen her since uh, actually, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s. It must have been the early 2000s um, that she appeared. And then most recently, she appeared again um, uh, in 2020, as a matter of fact, just a few years ago. And again, you know, I said, please leave me alone. Please leave me alone. And then she, I haven't seen her since. Uh, but I, that's what I would say. Just 
uh, for me, I, I can't relate to that in in the uh, in the UAP sense, uh, let's say, because I wanted them to be here with me. I wanted them to appear with me uh, and for me. But uh, with this other experience, I, I this was unwelcomed. I just thought it was an intrusion, and that worked for me. Um, so I guess I guess that's what you have to be forceful and say, leave me alone and. Um, and I, right. I think in many cases they would like respect that. Uh, I, I don't know. I can't really answer that because I haven't had that direct experience right. with uh, with a UAP type of um, entity. That's well, it's, I will say what's interesting is that I've had to have a private conversation with someone about someone who is having <clears throat> issues with um, EM exposure from orbs that was pretty frightening. Um, so we talked about what could you physically do other than like telling them go away. We talked about, you know, could you go down the path of using crystals? And then I found out there are literally devices and ever since I've looked them up, Google has shown this ad to me over and over. <laughs> but there are devices that pick up EM and stuff like that and are supposed to help with EM in your atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> and they're expensive i might add but google shows me the ad like every time i open a website now <laughs> i'll try to show it to you and right, then, right. right. yeah and apparently robert salas said at one point um maybe possibly the government too but mufon was trying to use like little black boxes to monitor around abductees to see if they could pick up disturbances in the atmosphere when they were having an encounter too mm -hmm. so the, have you heard about those well yeah well i'm coming from my professional experience in electronic intelligence i would say right now all around us there are electromagnetic um, right waves of energy we're bathed in electromagnetic energy all the time and a lot of folks um they do something which uh is not recommended i do it but it's i heard it's not recommended when you recharge your phone at night or recharge your electronic devices at night, don't do it in the bedroom. Do it far away from the bedroom as possible. Uh, leave it in the kitchen or some other room where you're not sleeping in it um, because the, your phone talks all the time. I mean, it's talking right now, even though uh, you're not using it, you know, still communicating. You're still downloading information to the phone and then the phone is communicating out. And uh, so there's several frequencies used. Uh, my phone uses 600 megahertz, for example. And if you're on another provider's phone, they're using uh, a higher level of frequency, you know, uh, much higher, like six gigahertz. Um, we're always bombarded with yeah. magnetic energy. Even this iMac screen I have in front of me is bombarding me with a lot of energy from it. Right. Um, so it's it's no escaping it unless you just sleep in a Faraday cage. Um, okay, so that's the solution. Yeah. Giant cage. <laughs> a giant cage uh, designed to uh, block out electromagnetic emissions. Um, short of that, I don't know what to tell you. I did look up that some metals can block that to some degree. Mm -hmm. I imagine that with an orb, you know, it has to get into the house. So once it's in the house, you're kind of, in a, you have a problem. But before it gets in there, 
some kind of blocking with metal might work, right? I I don't know. I have no right. experience with um, with that at all. I just know from a general sense, um, uh, there's no way uh, modern humanity can block itself from electromagnetic emissions, right. man-made or otherwise. It's always there. Um, there's natural uh, radiological signatures coming from the earth. Right. Uh, I mean, you can take a Geiger counter and it may tick really low, but you know, there's a lot of radioactive materials on the earth and they're just, and we didn't put them there. It's just natural to the earth. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's, it's everywhere. So you're telling me not to buy the really expensive device. Google keeps trying to yeah, sell me. Yeah. <laughs> Every since, like, there's one right there. Every since then, <laughs> I'll, I'll show it to you because it pops up so often it won't take long for me to get that photo to you but yes ever since then it's like yes please buy this it's like two thousand dollars seven thousand oh i don't gosh. know it's ridiculous and it's supposed oh to gosh. absorb that but but you know it's worth noting um i've done research into em effects because we know that's one of the things that happens to people when they're near a uap i've cautioned people please don't get close to one that's powered up um, we got the issues with radiation. We've got EM issues. Please don't get close to a UAP when it's powered up. Um, so that's a big obvious. Don't do that. But someone who has may end up with something called the Frey effect, which of course causes sound inside the head. Um, and that happened to someone that I'd interviewed also. I won't name him at the moment, even though he was pretty public about what happened to him. Um, <laughs> And then there's people who see things. They hallucinate because of excessive EM. Um, like they might even see, you know, dino beavers. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, the government figured out a way to weaponize EM. And mm -hmm. so there's these crowd um, dispersal um, devices. Actually, they're mounted on uh, armored cars and they transmit uh, wavelength uh, at 95 gigahertz, right. 95 billion times per second. Mm -hmm. And it, it's designed to cause discomfort to the person and it can affect uh, one's, one's own perception at that wavelength. Mm -hmm. And that's why, um, you know, I would say that 5G right now doesn't use any of those frequencies right now. Mm -hmm. uh, 5G, um, I have 5G on 600 megahertz, and that's like a very low, comparatively low uh, wavelength of 600 megahertz, and it's still 5G. 5G doesn't mean it's going to hurt you. It's the frequency used in the 5G uh, uh, transmission okay. protocol that will can't hurt you. So as long as they stay out of the um, really sh super short wavelengths, like 95 gigahertz, um, uh, it should be safe. But yep. there's this thing called the Internet of Things where your appliances talk to each other, <laughs> whatever they're envisioning for the Internet of Things, where all your devices will communicate with you and with each other. Um, they're using these extremely high capacity, high bandwidth and also short wavelengths. Right. And the reason why that's dangerous is because the shorter the wavelength, it gets it, it gets into the cellular level that is so short that it can enter your cell and resonate within your cell. And I'm, I'm sure there are physiologists who disagree with me or electrical engineers. I'm neither one of those, but just speaking in layman terms, that's, that's what's harmful. 
I know. I think um, one thing that they try to figure out when they look for ghosts, when like the, the ghost teams go out, is is there an excessive amount of radiation somewhere causing this sense that you like it can cause feelings of um, euphoria, it can cause feelings of depression, it can cause headaches, and and it. I've heard about the sick gun, you know, that has mm -hmm. been used on other people to make them actually feel sick with this. And it's really scary. And of course, you know, we're, they're looking at Havana syndrome. So uh -huh. that's uh, the physical aspect of the phenomenon. And I do hope that it will be heavily studied under the new law um, because that and the psychology is concerning to people. So, mm -hmm. The other aspect of that, the other aspect of the physical side effects is that I've noticed a lot of experiencers end up with long-term medical issues. Mm -hmm. um, they have conditions that affect their immune system. Um, I think the only recommendation I would have for that is that you have to get medical treatment in that case. Mm -hmm. um, but, but what are, do you have any thoughts or insights about that? Um, no, I really don't. Um, sometimes a cold is just a cold, you know. Um, I don't know. Um, it's just there's so many things um, in in our daily lives that can cause inflammation. Um, I really believe that um, uh, what we eat, what we drink, um, can help us with not having a body so inflamed that it attracts. Um, uh, a need for the body to heal itself. Inflammation is basically the body trying to heal itself. And in so healing itself, uh, you may feel uh, not well. Um, that's why, you know, we have a fever and you run up a fever because the body is trying to get rid of something by heating the body up. It's an indication of the body trying to heal itself. Um, it, in itself, it's not a sickness. Um, so again, I'm speaking medical terms. I'm not qualified to do so. I, I'll give that caveat out. But uh, so you don't think that necessarily the exposure or encounter with a UAP is going to be the cause? I don't think it's the cause. It, it may trigger something that's dormant in every one of us, and it may it may bring it up to the forefront in our health, and not necessarily causing something. If you have a propensity to like. For example, let's say, uh, uh, let's say in, in your uh, ancestry that you've had um, ancestors with a certain type of ailment, and maybe it's dormant in within uh, yourself, but then an encounter like that uh, might, um, I, lack of a better term, energize that and cause it to come to fruition. I don't know if it's it's causing something that uh, is brand new. Maybe it's something that's already been there and exposure to it uh, will trigger it in some way and that's the best way i can i can say because not everyone who encounters um the the phenomenon is so affected it seems to be right. certain people and um, other people say they were healed by it right so it's, it's hard to explain uh, if you're harmed and i'm healed um what's going on there so right Okay, so I have two people present questions. Um, by the way, one of them presented like five or six questions. So I won't get to all of those in the time we have left. But I wanted to give you um, the questions 
One is from Max. You know Max. He was in our um, panel on Calling All Beings. He mm -hmm. also wanted to say that he wishes you well and hope that you're doing, he hopes that you're doing well. You. Um, he wanted to ask, um, he'd like to know how wide of a frequency spectrum the spheres of energy have been monitored across, i.e. UV or IR or RF, etc. Oh, okay. Um, I don't know about RF. Uh, specifically. Um, I do know about the IR, and I do know that uh, in the visible light wave, uh, it, it was 600 nanometers, which presented itself as orange. Uh, I've heard that they also present uh, as blue, which is a shorter wavelength. When you go toward the blue side of the spectrum, your wavelength starts getting shorter and shorter. Um, uh, so uh, I've heard that um, from uh, and I can't reveal this, this person's name, but um, he's associated with MUFON. And um, this person um, took some instruments out to measure the uh, rate of frequencies uh, presented by uh, this phenomenon. And so uh, he did measure uh, in the, what we call the, the K band, a K -U -K -A, I think KA band. It's in the 30s of gigahertz. Uh, 30 billion cycles per second and slightly above maybe 36 billion cycles per second. Um, but writing this waveform was something at three gigahertz, three billion times per second. So three gigahertz, think about that. Um, that was the wavelength, um, the radio frequency encountered in 1957 by an Air Force reconnaissance plane called the RB-47. The B-47 was a strategic bomber, and the R, reconnaissance B-47, is the reconnaissance version of a um, aircraft designed to drop, drop atomic weapons. But they put uh, instruments on it to collect radio signals and also electronic signals, electronic intelligence signals. And they were chasing uh, a UFO, and they collected three gigahertz, which is similar to what he saw as a um, modulation riding the carrier of what he collected. Uh, having said that, um, I would also uh, recount that in my presentation, I talked about a Russian radar that operated uh, basically at three gigahertz. And they used this radar to attract or lure the phenomenon to the ground where they were able to interact with it. Um, 3.5 to four gigahertz is the radio frequency of the SPY-1 radar on board the Princeton and Aegis cruiser and other Aegis destroyers and cruisers. The spy wind radar um, uh, operates at that frequency, 3.54 gigahertz. So something to do with that wavelength. Um, something oh. about that, the uh, phenomenon that it does show up at around the uh, S band between two to four gigahertz. Yeah, well, maybe you and I can have a conversation another time about UAP baiting and whether or not we're baiting them or they're baiting us. Or That's just a, with us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I put that out on Twitter today. Actually, I oh. said, are we baiting them or are they baiting us? Because they know what we're doing. <laughs> like, obviously, they know what we're doing. They might be like, okay, we'll play. <laughs> you know, that could be what's going on. Yeah. But, I, um, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I would, briefly, uh, uh, to answer Max, um, I think the government has data on this that they're not releasing. Of course. You know, it'd have to be very sensitive and right. And, and, 
this Havana syndrome at embassies, um, you can deploy, I can say this much, you can deploy electronic instruments at these embassies to collect whatever was causing Havana syndrome. You can collect that, that signature and they probably have that signature and have studied it. Right. And, and I think that they've made it pretty clear that they're not going to publicly make a statement about the cause. You know, it's pretty clear that, you know, what they said, they reported, oh, it's, you know, we don't think it's a state actor, but it's unidentified. So that's interesting. It's kind of elusive publicly. Um, so the other person who asked multiple questions is my friend, Eric Schlimmer, who is a um, therapist who wants to help people with UAP experiences. He had many, many, many questions, um, but I think I'm going to just pick my favorite one. Um, let's see. I think my favorite one was, do you think there is a pattern for people who have UAP experiences or visits? A pattern in, I don't know what sense, uh, in location. Like, in like how, they, how they're chosen to be visited or have encounters. And this kind of goes to that. Could it be the situation that Gary Nolan's implying or is it random or are they looking for certain people um, or, you know, some people who do CE5 would say it's the people who have higher vibrations and consciousness. Well, why do you think UAPs are visiting certain people? Why do we have certain people become experiencers? Uh, I have my own um, theories about that, and by no means are my theories any more than just theories. Um, my favorite one is that um, experiencers were visited at a much younger age and may have forgotten that visit, and they may have been uh, had uh, devices emplaced in their bodies. Um, the word implant has all sorts of negative connotations. Um, but uh, they may have had some type of interaction directly to their bodies at a younger age they don't remember. And later that um, device or whatever uh, becomes, becomes triggered to this experience. They become open to this experience. It could be that it's generational as well. Um, they could be like generations of experiencers. Uh, they may skip generations. Um, Anecdotally, uh, it seems to be on the maternal side that there are experiences on the maternal side. Um, that's true in my family um, as well. Um, and in my case, um, there's also, uh, speaking of, of our culture awareness, uh, I'm part Cherokee Indian, and my great-grandmother, uh, she was full-blooded Cherokee Indian, and uh, in her community. Uh, she was known as, I guess you would call a shaman. Um, my my uh, father told me that his grandmother, my great-grandmother, used to do what I guess we would call readings <laughs> for people. Uh, she would uh, be in deep meditation and talk to spirit beings and things like that. And one of the things that my uh, great-grandmother related to my father was that Atlantis was real and it has some significance in, in the Cherokee nation of Atlantis. Um, and so that could be it as well. Um, but in, in another sense, it, it, you can open it up with maybe biochemical means as well. It could be substances that you can take. I heard of DMT, for example, 
that you can take that um, anything that can separate your five physical senses from your mind. Uh, it's more like a liberation for your mind. And then you can transport your mind outward. Um, and that's part of uh, like the meditation experience that I've had of being able to transport myself out of myself and make myself more amenable to having these experiences that, that could also come into play as well. But I don't think there's an easy answer to this. I think, again, it's in very highly individual. Um, okay, so yeah, I, I think it is true. It's like we don't really have the greatest answer. Mm -hmm. um, I will say that I had spoken to um, Grant Cameron who came on Calling All Beings and he talked at length about how the, the um, world that we visit in dreams or through mm -hmm. DMT or because you're having an experience at a sweat lodge or yeah. because you're deeply meditating or in hypnotherapy, that world is as real, if not more real than this one, which some people have implied is a simulation, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really, it's a, it's a difficult thing for, for people to grasp that concept, but I will tell you, and this leads to one of the final questions I have for you, and I hope we have time to cover this, is in meditation, I've had experiences that are the same as people who have had near-death experiences or mm -hmm. who have been in trances or um, who have had physical encounters with beings. I've had the same thing happen within meditation, which is really interesting. Um, and I've talked about them like piece by piece with people. I've been introduced to a council same thing happened with Priscilla, Quantum Witch. Mm -hmm. I've seen a light being. Same thing happened with James from Engaging the Phenomenon. I've got the connection of the cord that goes all the way back to the beginning where our light source or God source is, where mm -hmm. all the orbs are that are basically spirits. Um, and um, Anthony from Unidentified S4 had that same experience. Mm -hmm. um, I know that when I was speaking to Marie from Marie's UFOs, she was describing an experience on a craft and I could see everything when she was telling me about it. And right. I knew I understood what was happening when she was telling me about it in a way that it was oddly like she didn't know some things and I felt like I did. <laughs> like, for, so for instance, they were showing um, the people on the craft um, screens and they were showing them earth being poisoned and mm -hmm. another planet being populated mm -hmm. and I explained to her they're showing you why you got abducted that's mm -hmm. why they showed it to you <laughs> and then she saw light beings too the light being that I met in my meditation told me that it was my soul and my grandmother and I'm not the only person who had that you know, this person's outside of me, but is me interaction with a light being. It's so interesting to me, like how my meditation, I go do research afterwards and find out something. I've been shown how to fly UAPs in meditation, mm -hmm. which is, you know, through consciousness. And they essentially told me to make the UAP dance. Mm -hmm. And then I talked to Grant Cameron and Preston Dennett and they have similar cases, you know, so it's, it's really interesting. So I, I don't know why my meditation is allowing me to see those things, but I also have other weird things happen. Like I squabble with entities. Mm -hmm. 
like I get in arguments like how to disclose how to tell people and it's funny because synchronicity always happens where the thing I tell them let's try this the next day something's presented to me as to why that's not going to work yeah yeah um and, and the nearest light being to you is what's inside you you know right. I, i've said that we are all hosts we're corporeal hosts with a light being who wants right. to experience that corporeal life um we have a sentient it's a sentient light being and we have a symbiotic relationship with that light being and when we do meditate it's not our minds that our our minds are not doing everything it's that we're experiencing it through that light being because right. it's it's part of uh, its its existence was in other incarnations uh, in in the past perhaps or even right. in the future or it could be that it's hosted elsewhere as well simultaneously um, with another corporeal existence here on earth and that that's that's the communications device if you will, that is allowing you to have these experiences, to have this higher understanding of what's going on and flying craft. If you, you know how to fly a craft because it flew the craft itself. And right. it's conveying that message to your physical mind, your physical memory. Um, and so sometimes I think when we dream, um, it's a wonderful way of releasing that light beam so it can go somewhere else right. because you know, get into a deprivation tank and float in salt, you know, in the mm -hmm. darkness and, you know, see where you see where you go. I haven't tried that. There's one here in Tucson I'm trying to get to. I would like mm -hmm. to have that experience and and just fold away. Well, what's interesting is that I started meditating before I knew what it was. When I was very little, I insisted at bedtime that I had to have time to daydream. Ah, yeah. And that was before I knew. <laughs> what it yeah. was <laughs> so, i'll tell you something weird though like i i don't know how much of it is trance versus meditation versus remote viewing sometimes i know mm. it's never out of body i can tell you that <laughs> which is very different but yeah i always feel like those lines are all very blurred and i think you know the the concept of intention and effort those concepts are what really ultimately matter for success with that. But yeah, so we went really woo there <laughs> for a little while. Yeah, but but it is it's important, and it's too bad that people are not more accepting of that part of it because I think everyone has that. For those who are religious, the light being could also be called your soul. Just saying, that's just semantics. <laughs> So I wanted to thank you for coming and speaking to me today. I hope that in the time that we had, we gave some people some help, um, some advice that can help them with their experiences. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say to anyone who's had experiences, John, before we close up? Um, I would say that um, uh, if anything, um, write them down, uh, even for yourself. Um, you don't have to publish them. You don't have to share them, but write them down and um, just read them back later. And it, more might come to you. You might remember more. And to seek out um, Opus or QHHT practitioners um, if you need that avenue of support.
Yeah, unfortunately, we didn't have time to get into the whole aspect of memory loss in general, and there's so much there. And who knows, it could be caused by the uh, the technology. Um, I spoke to um, someone recently who was at Bentwaters and had memory loss. So there's that's an interesting topic. And unfortunately, we just don't have time to get into it today, but maybe one day in the future. In the meantime, can you tell people where they can reach you? Well, um, uh, the best way to reach me is through direct messaging on Twitter. And having said that, I've been inundated with a lot of direct messages on Twitter, and I try to get to them all. A lot of them just want to, for me to that recount something or explain something that I've said before. Um, and they may have just seen one or two interviews and you know they need to see the full gamut uh, of interviews I've done. Um, but uh, that's the best way to reach me. And I, I, I'm sorry if I don't answer each one. Um, this will be the last interview I do for a while. It'll be um, like a few months before um, I will be appearing uh, again. I don't think there's any much, there's much more to talk about. I'm waiting for the congressional uh, report to occur uh, mm -hmm. through this NDAA um, legislation. I'm waiting for the James Webb telescope to turn on and I'm waiting for the 75th anniversary of Roswell to happen in July, uh, seeing if that's an impetus for the government to reveal a little bit more than what they did at the 50th, which was a disaster. So I think through the year uh, in 2022, I think we'll see more come out. I'm hoping that way. Uh, there's a lot of folks who, like Lou, who hints at that, uh, Jim Singman kind of hinted at that as well. That there's more coming, folks. Uh, just, you know, find yeah. a hobby. <laughs> Make yourself busy, find a hobby. So, um, uh, I will say, John, it seems to me that they take turns. I've been pretty attentive about how these people are connected to each other because, you know, I'd research. I'm interested in that. I get a little deeper than some people do. And I think they're taking turns. I know it's not your turn right now. It seems to be Jim Semivan's turn right now. So enjoy your break. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, I'm really happy that Jim is sharing more about his personal experiences. He was he was not doing that before. And uh, right. so I'm very happy that he's doing that. And uh, Lou, share yours. <laughs> oh, he did say he had one. He admitted it. Oh, good. Yeah. I hope to hear more about it. I don't know. I don't think I don't think he's ready. I oh. will. T I I know Sean Cahill also talked a little bit more about some of his. So right. both both of them have been a little more honest that they've they're not just in a passing interest mode. But I think for you know just side note for Lou, like if if I knew where the UAPs were and that was my job, I would go look at them too. <laughs> you <laughs> know, like I keep saying, please hire me to do that, please. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go. Yeah. I'll go, I'll go look too. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know if that's where his experience is from or not, but he has admitted that, that it has happened. Um, he mentioned it to, um, Linda Moulton Howe in oh. that interview that he did with her. Right. Wonderful. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I think it's going to be an exciting year also. In the meantime, I'm going to say goodbye and, um, to everybody who has listened. Thank you very much for listening to us today. Um, you know, you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram. I will admit I'm not very good at Instagram, but I am there. And of course, I'm with Calling All Beings um, on YouTube. So take care, everybody. 